Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm your host, Stephanie, and today I'm joined by author Grady Hendricks to talk about his upcoming novel, The Final Girl Support Group, and books about serial killers. So welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always, always fun to talk about murder books with someone. Of course. So Final Girl Support Group's coming out this summer. Well, actually... When this episode drops, it'll be release day. Oh, it will be. Oh, okay. No, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, Well, that's very weird for me because this is a book that I kind of lived with for a lot longer than normal. Like usually, usually a book's like two years, really. Like, you know, like, and this is a book I wrote the first, I looked through the draft file dates and the first one was the the first save document was January of 2014. So this one's been like, it's weird to have it out in the world after living inside my <laughs> head for so long. Do you have to rework it a few times, like trying to figure out everything? Well, it was less me and more the world, but also sort of me. Like, I can't blame the world for my problems. But when I first wrote this book, I actually started the first draft before I wrote Horror Score, which is my first uh, novel with Quirk about a haunted Ikea. And um, I had a draft that was like 80% done. And after Horror Store, I did my best friend's exorcism. And after that, I went to my publisher and I did a I did a full rewrite of Final Girl Support Group. And I was like, hey, I'd really love to do that. And this book. And the day I sent it over to my publisher was the day there was the trade announcement about Riley Sager's Final Girls book. And they were like, yeah, I'm not even going to open this document, which annoyed me because I'd worked really hard on it. And it's a really different book. And I'm like, oh, come on. Like, you know, the last time I checked, there was there were at least two haunted house books, you know, and there, I think there were between three and five books about vampires. Like, is it because there's girl and, you know, is it because it's final girls? Like, is it a, that's why we can only have one? You know what I mean? Like, like we have to have the token girl horror trope, but we can't have more than that. And um, and they were pretty insistent that it was not only a no, but a hell no. And so then, oh. then I I gave it to them a while later, and again they were like, "No, we're just really not interested in this," and um, which I get. And, and looking back on it, I'm kind of like, "Yeah, maybe it." I, I think maybe it wasn't in the right place then. So I would say about a year, two years ago, my manager was like, "Look, do you have anything trunked like that I can go out with?" Because you know, the problem with working with people in LA, if you're a writer, is they get annoyed at how long it takes to write a book. Like they want to be selling stuff. And um, I was like, well, I got this final girl thing, but people, people don't seem to like it. And he read it and was like, this is great. And then, so I gave it to my literary agent and he really liked it. So then I spent some time rewriting it with them. And then I just kept rewriting. And I feel like probably the last round was when I turned that, where I found that dial to turn where you get that last 10%, you know, where it's like, oh, now it's the book it needs to be. So I feel like maybe it wasn't the right time. I wasn't the right writer. Whatever reason, the world, the stars weren't aligned, but it just never happened. And I've always really liked it. So I'm actually glad it's getting its day in court and terrified that people will see this strange mutant child of mine out in the world unaccompanied by an adult. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about the plot? Sure. Um, well, it's funny. Someone pointed out to me recently, they're like, oh, so basically it's Watchmen with horror instead of superheroes. And I was like, God 
damn it. I wish I, yes, um, you're right. Um, and I never realized that. Um, but so essentially the, the, the conceit of the book is that, you know, these horror franchises that we all live with, these slasher movies are based on real things that happen to women. And, um, you know, back when they were teenagers, like, you know, as they do in the movie, and then the franchises go off and get bigger and do their thing. And so it's about these final girls who survive these horrible real-life incidents whose lives became fodder for sort of pop culture, and they all had their 15 minutes of fame, and now it's 20 years later, and they still meet, a bunch of them still meet in a support group. Um, and they're all sort of wondering, you know, why are we still doing this? Like, this is stuff that happened when we were teenagers. Like, let's let's move on. Like, some of them have dealt with it in really healthy ways. Some of them have dealt with it by going total survivalist. Some of them have dealt with it by substance, substance abuse problems. So they all have their different coping techniques, but they're all kind of like, why are we still talking about something that happened? We were 17. We're in our 40s now. And um, they start to get killed one by one. And only one of them believes that it's it's a, a conspiracy against them. And the rest just think, you know, she's the actual dangerous one who's perhaps doing this to to keep the support group going. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of started with... I, there's been final girl projects out there. I mean, like Scream Queens and the ninth season or 20th season or whatever of American Horror Story and the Scream TV <laughs> series. But I feel like they always treat final girls kind of in a campy way. Like there's a very, very wink, wink, nudge, nudge, ironic, self-conscious horror genre. We're all, you know, we're, we all know who Michael Myers is kind of, kind of elbow in the ribs. And I've always been kind of like, I don't know, man, like, this stuff is horrible and it happened to these people when they were kids and then they have to live with it for the rest of their lives. That's that's intense. So I want to sort of take them seriously, you know, like really give them their moment in the sun and sort of be like, what would this be like if it was real? What would it be like if you were at a summer camp and all your friends got killed and you had to live with that for the rest of your life and you had to kill the person who did it? Like, what does that say about you and them and the world and you? Yeah. Something I've always been very interested in, like the kind of trauma that comes from that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. There were two things that really kicked this book off for me when I was a kid. I wasn't allowed to see R-rated movies. And so I would read, I would convince my scoutmaster that when we went for snack time after Boy Scout meetings, and, or Cub Scout meetings, I guess it was at the time, at the gas station across the street from the church where we met, that I was allowed to spend my money on magazines and I would buy Fangoria. And... So I'd be obsessed with these movies that I never saw. Like, but but the two that really stuck with me is one is Nightmare on Elm Street 3, where Heather Langenkamp, who's the final girl in one, shows up as the the therapist for the group, the kids who are having nightmares from Freddy in part three. And I was like, wow. Like a character from one horror movie, like helping out the characters in another horror movie, like that's that's great. And then the other was the beginning of Friday the 13th Part 2, which I always thought was really rough. Like, you know, Adrienne King, Alex Hard Alice Hardesty, she, she's she's gone on, she's she's escaped, she survived, she's living in a really depressing house. And then it's like it starts all over again and she gets killed. It's like, what? It was just they just dismissed her in such an offhanded manner. I always thought that was like, yeah. oh so, so wrong. Well, I loved the Final Girls support group. Oh, thanks. Like a lot of slasher fans, I think it was fun to try and see connections maybe between like uh, 
like movie heroines, movie final girls in the books and trying to like find little Easter eggs, which there's a lot of. Yeah. Well, I also realize, you know, at the end of the day, a book should be fun, right? Like, like for all the talk about trauma and recovery and violence, it's like, yeah, you want to have fun reading it. So I really went to town and I've been revising this book for so many years I think every single name in this book has some kind of parallel somewhere, even if they only get mentioned in passing. I also loved the little, like in between the chapters, like the little think pieces on like, let's rethink the final girl or like, let's really dig into, you know, how you find those articles everywhere. I love Oh, thanks. Well, I always think it's fun to like throw in that extra world building stuff, just like... Because I develop a lot of that stuff when I'm writing a book. Like, I go, I sort of do too much work and, like, you know, write all this backstory stuff and people's books and articles. So I was like, well, I wrote it all. May as well, like, use it and get it out there. Uh, who was your favorite final girl? Oh, well, I've I've got two, really. Um, uh, I got to say, Heather is kind of like, I love Heather. Like, she was a lot of fun to write. Um, and she also, you know, I I really like characters who sort of like, are just out for themselves. Um, that's always a blast. Um, I, but, but the one I, but I've got to say, I really, I'm trying to think there's, there's Heather who I love. And I got to say the other one is Danny. Um, I really have a soft spot for Danny. She's, she's kind of my hero. Like, you know, just, she's a little bit. Because she's in the ballpark of the Michael Myers Halloween Jamie Lee Curtis thing. And I've just always, there's something very comforting and big sister about her. And um, I love the fact that she's dealing with a bigger life than just this group. Um, I, but I really like Danny a lot. Uh, but but Heather's, my, Heather's my girl. She was a lot of fun. What about you? I do. Who'd you like? I did. Um, forgive me. I'm horrible That's okay. with character names. But the... Texas Chainsaw. Oh, Marilyn. Marilyn. Oh. That's it. Yeah, no, Marilyn was Marilyn was a blast. And um yeah, it was it was also really fun because um to it was fun to take that Texas Chainsaw and make the lead sort of a make them um Latina, you know? Um because when you think about it, it's like, well, yeah, it's Texas, of course. And then suddenly all that stuff with um with the um, the Hanson family is who they are in the in the book. Um, you're like, oh, it takes on all this like really vile stuff once you once you start doing that, you know. Because in the Texas Chainsaw sort of universe, right? It's like the the family are these hicks who fell on hard times, and that's always been sort of the thing in America, right? It's like if no matter how poor you are, no matter how bad things are, no matter how little money you have. As long as you're white, there's always someone worse than you that you can sort of like oppress. Um, and 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 that's sort of them. You know, it's like it's like they may be, you know, inbred redneck serial killing cannibals, but at least they're not Latino <laughs> in their in their view of the world. Yeah, it was. And it also I mean, the pacing of it, I, I remember diving right in and like the action kicks off like right away. I was like, oh, we are just diving into this. Yeah. <laughs> Things are just happening. Yeah. Well, you know, there's two kinds of books, right? There's the big ones that you get lost in. And then there are the sort of like ones that just go. 
boom, 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 boom. And I'm, the one I'm writing now for 2022 is a big get lost in one, but this was much more of a let's go. Let's just jump in and go. Southern Book Club was a big get lost in, Final Girls, and We Sold Our Souls. And also Horror Store to some extent were more like, you know, I wanted them to feel more like thrill rides. Oh, I saw my best friend's exorcism just got the adaptation news, which was very exciting. I was very happy to hear that. Yeah, no, me too. Well, also, um, the thing that made me happiest about it is that Elsie Fisher from Eighth Grade is starring in it as Abby. And I got to say, man, she is phenomenal. So that makes me really, really happy. I do have some questions from Patreon supporters. Sure. So... Dendrain has like three, so do you want me to give them to you one at a time? Yeah, let's go. One at a time. I'll <laughs> okay. take them. Which one of your own books is your favorite? Oh, We Sold Our Souls. Um, I love all my little mutant children, but that book is the only one that I can still reread parts of. And, and the reason really is that that book really wrecked my life and, um, uh, and also sort of got me through a really bad patch in my life. And when I say patch, um, I mean patch like a year. So that's a book that did a lot of harm and did a lot of good. And it's the first time that I, that I, I don't know, these books get so wrapped up in your life. Like when you buy a book, you buy a book, you read it, it's fun. But that's like a year or two of my life that I lived. And so it's a weird, it's very different to be, the person behind the book. Um, and so that one just will always have a special place in my heart. But yeah, we sold our souls. She also wants to know, what do you look for in your own reading? Oh, um, you know, I read so much stuff that's mostly old. I read so little that's current. I'm such a jerk. I feel bad about it. Um, mo so mostly what I'm looking for is just something that takes me by surprise. You know, I just read this book um, that is called The Shrewsdale Exit by John Buell, from the early 80s, late 70s. And it's like a paperback horror revenge thing. You know, it's like dude's wife and daughter get murdered by evil bikers. And he, um, you know, goes out for revenge. And then it just takes this amazing turn. And really, I was like, the writing was good enough. But I was just like, what the hell? Where is this going? Like, you know, it's just fun to be in a book that's taking you somewhere where you have no clue. I do love that. There's been a lot of the paperback from Horror Gems that I'm so glad I stumbled oh, across. Thanks. I think like When Darkness Loves Us um, was phenomenal. I think my favorite so far has to be The Auctioneer. The Auctioneer is a phenomenal book. It's really, really something else. Um, the When Darkness Loves Us is interesting because when I read that book, I think I was coming off reading about 30 really sort of subpar paperbacks putting together paperbacks from hell and i hit that and it was just like it's probably the difference between like you know huffing glue and then suddenly like you know really getting some good cocaine you're just like whoa <laughs> there's a there's a definite difference here like we're in the big leagues all of a sudden that that book was amazing um it 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 and, and I had to come back to it and read it again because I was like, maybe I'm overestimating it because I had just read so many books by like J.N. Williamson. 
um, that like anything where they can string three sentences together seemed like a masterpiece. And it was still good. It's a pretty horrifying book, too. Yeah, I went into it blind. So I didn't I wasn't aware that it was like two novellas or where yeah. like I was a few chapters in like, where is this going? Are we just going to be here? Is this where the story is? Now? Yeah, well, I'm curious. Well, I also really love that second novella. Beauty is I think is really good. Um, but I was going to say, so when you read that, had you had a kid yet or been pregnant or was this pre pre kid? No, I had my son. Because I was going to say I was not pregnant yet. So how is it reading this book as a mother? Because to me, this is one of the darkest books about motherhood I've ever read. I mean, it was tough at times. But I remember being like, okay, oh, wow, we're doing this. (laughs) (laughs) And the last part of her question is, do you read horror poetry? And if so, whose? I don't. I wish I did. Um, a really good friend of mine um, is a horror poet and a very good one. And I've read a few of her poems that I liked, but um, I just don't know enough. Jocelyn wants to know, what is it about horror comedy that draws you in? As a horror comedy lover myself, I'm invested in why you enjoy writing it and what it gives you as a creator that maybe other styles of horror don't. I don't know. I mean, I just write what I write. Do you know what I mean? I let someone else worry about the genre. But I really like things that feel like real life. Like, you know, it's like in my best friend's exorcism, when they have the exorcism and, and the the dude who's doing it is like getting his protein in and taking like hydration breaks. It's like, well, of course you would. Like, on the one hand, it's ridiculous. On the other hand, well, yeah, in real life, those things can go on for like 12 hours. Like, what do you do? Not eat? You don't go to the bathroom? Like, so to me, it's just sort of applying reality to horror tropes and trying to really find a way to make them new for me again. So, and, and I get it. It comes out funny. But I think when people say horror comedy, I always think of like Love at First Bite or like Saturday the 14th or something. And I'm just like, really? That's what I'm doing? Um, but yeah, I get it. No, it's just it's just where I wind up. I have no control over it, unfortunately. It's just what the book wants to be. Exactly. I have a limited toolbox. <laughs> Danielle wants to know what your all-time favorite slasher movie is. Oh, wow. All-time favorite slasher movie. Um, oh, Black Christmas. 100%. I'm a, nut, the- I'm a nut for Christmas. It's a legitimately scary movie. Um, I really, really think Margot Kidder is just phenomenal in that film. Um, and it's nice to see John Saxon and his hairpiece, you know? Um, I, I love that movie. But I've got very strong, I mean, like, you know, my favorite Nightmare movie, my favorite Friday movie, my favorite, you know, I've got, I've got all those little things there. But in general, Black yeah. Christmas. What's your favorite Nightmare movie, three? Um, you know, actually, it's funny. I really, really love two a lot. Um, three is a great movie. Saw it in the theaters when it came out. And I actually think four is deeply underrated. I do, too. It really, you know, Alice is a great final girl. And um, I love the dojo fight uh, with Freddy. <laughs> yeah. um, and that the dude's winning, like the power of karate. He's like winning against Freddy. I also really, I, it's got the greatest gear up scene ever in a horror movie. Um, so, yeah, I think four has all kinds of stuff going for it. And I think seven is a really phenomenal movie. Um I rewatched that about a year ago and I realized the worst thing in seven is that Wes Craven can't act, you know, uh, but it's good. But ultimately, too, I think it's just a really intense, weird movie with a lot to unpack in it. I love to. I think it, I think it's a ton of fun. 
Yeah. And I also think he's a great final girl. You know, he's so mm-hmm. thinks he's doing one thing and is doing another with his performance. I think it's fantastic. Did you watch his documentary? I haven't. How is it? I, I liked it a lot. Yeah. Um, it's very good. What about Friday? Oh, Friday too. I think, well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, like, I'm not as big of a fan of four as other people are, you know, um, for, for a fun Friday. I, I mean, I'll take, I'll take three, four or six, I guess. Um, but the one I love is two. Two is actually a legitimately scary movie. Do you not think one is? You know, (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> David Friedman is not a director. And I think he would say the same thing. It's amazing when you see two because, um, oh gosh, Steve Miner is by no means Stanley Kubrick. But it's like, oh wow, this movie suddenly has shots. Like this movie suddenly has like <laughs> composition. Like, you know, it's, um, it's and, and you know, I think Baghead Jason is the scariest Jason. Oh. Uh, mutant underwater child lake Jason. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hockey mask Jason, fine. Baghead Jason's my guy. I have a soft spot for Jason Takes Manhattan. You know, Jason Takes Manhattan, <laughs> I think people love to slag on it. They're like, well, he doesn't get to Manhattan for 40 minutes. I'm like, it's a Friday movie. Did you think anything was going to be like, like it said on the cover? <laughs> so last Patreon question. Mia wants to know, is there any truth to the person in the vent Twitter thread? Because even if there is, can you just tell us there isn't so we can stop being afraid? There is not. Uh, it's funny. Uh, friends of mine, when that went viral, were texting me like, did this really happen? I'm like, oh my God, dude, do you not know? Like, if this had happened to me, I would. that's how I would open conversations. Hi, I'm Grady. Someone died in the vent over my bed when I was a child. Like, um, <laughs> But I, I was really happy that people went for it that way. Um, the power of the internet. Yeah. Um, so should we move on to talking about our serial killer book? Let's do it. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> the first book I wanted to talk about, <laughs> which is The Shining Girls by Lauren Bucus. And I went like a, a different way with this. So I wanted one of my books to be more victim focused. And this story is very much that way. Um, It's the most supernatural of all the books that I'm talking about in that it's about a serial killer who time travels through a portal and murders women. (laughs) So it's originally set in Depression era Chicago and follows Harper Curtis, who's a drifter who finds a key to a house that opens other times, but he has to kill shining girls or girls that have like a shine or like in the book, like a shine of potential Um, and a future and he has to do this in order to keep his power but one of his victims gets away in 1989 and begins hunting him I liked a lot about this I liked the historical fiction aspect of it like one of the first victims was a like radium girl so she like literally glowed and had a shine to her and I went down a big wikipedia rabbit hole all about that Looking into it, there is an Apple TV Plus adaptation in the works that I did not know about. It's going to be starring Elizabeth Moss. Um, For rating, I'm going to say this is room temperature. It's an interesting story. Um, I love that the killer is not glorified as superhuman or really even an interesting guy. I would say the focus on the book is about the women and you get very close to them and a lot of focus into like what they were doing much more than you are about the serial killer. I think I was reading that this, she did a Ted talk about how she 
was very angry about a woman that she knew that was murdered and just did not find the justice that she needed. And that was really the the origin of where this book came from, was just that anger towards victims and their potential and their life being cut short like that. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoy Lauren Bucus as a writer. Um, so yeah, that was The Shining Girls by Lauren Bucus. So on a victim tip, you know, to keep things focused on the victim, I went for Alan Moore's From Hell, which is this giant, super scratchy black and white graphic novel about the graphic, uh, the Jack the Ripper killings. Um, and, you know, it's funny. This is a book that has been a huge part of my life since before I read it. Um, Alan Moore gave this interview years and years ago, probably in the 90s when this was just coming out, where he was talking to someone about writing historical fiction because it's a Jack the Ripper a graphic novel. He did a lot of research for it. And he said, you know, if I went back in time to Victorian London, which, you know, was at that point about 100 years ago, I would be on an alien planet. I wouldn't know how to use the money. I wouldn't know how to speak the language, the smells, the sights, the way the people interacted with each other. It would not. It would be like being in an alien environment. I, I would have a nervous breakdown. And it was really interesting to me to sort of think about the past as such a totality. You know what I mean? Not just like, oh, everyone's got these corsets and they 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 talk a little stilted and they don't use contractions. But like, it is a totally different gestalt, you know? And so so but but then when I finally read it, what really blew my mind is is the book is about the Ripper murders and sort of a God's eye view of them, but more always keeps people focused on the fact that this is about these victims, these dead women. And then at the center of all these conspiracy theories and Patricia Cornwell solving the Ripper killings and all these theories about, was it, was it, you know, uh, Prince Edward or all this stuff. They're these sad, poor women who got left behind. And no matter how far he ranges into like occult geography and all this stuff, he really keeps it human and emotional, which I think is is so hard to do because it's so easy to fall down these research rabbit holes and to get seduced by all the big ideas. And at the end of the day, it's just about the people. Um, so yeah, From Hell really, really... Got me. Um, did you? Have, you didn't read it, did you? Or have you read it? Uh, no, I haven't read it. I, I see it at the library, and it's just like so giant that I'm like, I don't know if I have that type of time commitment right now. I know it's a graphic novel, yeah. which I think maybe makes that time commitment a little easier. <laughs> but well, it's not a binge, right? Yeah. Like it's one of those things where you take it a chapter at a time. And you'll be okay. But like reading two chapters of it, even back to back, it's a little dense. And it starts to make me a little um, clammy. Uh, Also, whatever version you get, make sure it has the annotations, uh, which are sort of like more going further on the research at the back where you sort of like, the nice thing about it is it's not so much for the show off factor, but more like he's he's following this thread and it's connected to this sweater and then that sweater unravels and you realize that sweater is connected to like 10 other sweaters and those sweaters are connected to 10 other sweaters each and it's just all sweaters like it's just an infinite closet full of sweaters and it's just you realize that if you want to tell the story of someone getting killed you have to tell the story of the people around them and 
the place they were found and where they lived and where they died and how they lived and what they did and how policing happens. And, you know, and it's just, it's just this rabbit hole, you know, and it's just an endless one. Um, And he also, I think this is included with all the collected versions, but he wrote a piece at the end called Dance of the Gull Catchers, which is, uh, it's an illustrated piece. It's like a, a graphic novel essay, but about his experience writing the book and sort of how it transformed him over the years and how he thought about it. And it's it's another really meta level to it that's really fascinating. Um, it's it, I can't say enough good things about it. Um, in terms of a rating, I would say it's, very chilly. Um, I would say it's about as cold as you can get. Um, I I would say maybe even like tongue sticking to a flagpole cold. Um, it's it's there's an entire chapter of it that takes place while the killer dissects one of these women, and it's it's not gore for gore's sake, but mm-hmm. it is you know. I think Alan Moore's point was if you're going to talk about murder, let's talk about what we're talking about, and let's look at it, and let's not look away. And it's very. It's hard. It's it's tough at times. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to have to read this. Yeah, and it's I'm glad that you said that about him not falling down too far into these rabbit holes. That's my issue a lot of times with historical fiction is that I feel like the author just really liked their research and just really wants to share their research with me and I want a story. <laughs> like I want yeah, to be yeah. a little more focused narratively. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that's nice about filmmaking or writing a comic that you don't get with a book is that research serves a different point. Like, do you know what I mean? Like if I'm writing a book and I did research and I don't put the research in the book, how do you know I did the research? But then if I put it in the book, it's getting in the way of the story unless I'm judging it exactly. Right. Uh And so, um, you know, and, and so it's like, if I say that it's, you know, it's a scene set in like 1860 something, and this woman is wearing a, st- a certain color green, I think, I can't remember what they call it, uh, but a certain color green dress. Mm-hmm. Now, having done research on that green, that was made with with arsenic. And the people, and green arsenic was used, I believe, as a dye, a green dye, and it was very valuable. It got used in wallpaper and clothing. And often what would happen is people would lick the wallpaper like children or animals, or people would wear the dress and get super sweaty, and they would absorb this poison through their skin. And it could make them very pale and very sick and very anemic. And it was also like they were killing each other themselves bit by bit. And it's a really fascinating, it's got a lot of metaphorical implications and all this. Now, if I just put the person in the green dress in that book, okay, but are you getting it? Do you get it? Do you get the art? Do you, now I have to stop and tell you, well, how much am I telling? Like, do you know what I mean? If I'm making a movie or doing a graphic novel, they could just be in a green dress and I can show them looking very sick. And if you want to stick with the story, you can blow past that. If you want to stop and linger and rewatch or relook at it, you can sort of slow down and be like, oh, that person in that green, that's really sick. They almost look like they're like being poisoned or something. They're just, all, you know, so, so it's like because graphic novels and movies and TV get to operate on two streams at once, the visual and then the audio and sort of, you know what I mean? It's like they just can be a little denser than a book that's like you are being told this story. And if I want to go beyond that, I have to stop the story. Makes me uh, jealous. Yeah. Uh, 
I picked Zombie by Joyce Carol Oates, which is one I had been meaning to read for a while. So I'm happy I picked it up for this. So this was my killer POV. Uh, So this is a novella. It follows Quentin P., who is a serial killer that lives in Michigan. He's a caretaker at one of his father's properties. And throughout the novel, you know that he's been in trouble for something before. We don't know exactly what. Uh, This is all a diary from his POV. And it's very unhinged and i mean anyone who's even mildly aware of true crime is gonna see the the easy Dahmer comparisons i mean the whole premise of the book is that he is looking for someone to murder not to murder he's looking for someone to turn into essentially like a subservient sex slave zombie is what he wants and he has many failed attempts at this um and it's just so eerie reading it like how he goes to therapy and how he views the world around him I think most unsettling is how he views potential victims and the stalking and like what sticks out to him what makes him interested in a person and zero in on this person and um, the fact that he comes from this very upper middle class like his dad's a professor at a college and we see that that's why he didn't get in trouble for his previous crime was all of his connections and his privilege. And ugh, I say, if there's a book that's made me feel icky, it's been, <laughs> this is one of those books that made me feel quite icky. I am actually going to put this in a freezer. It was quite unnerving and just disturbing to be reading from his POV. And this, the experience of it at times was very disorienting because it was hard to even place where you were in time because like his dad would come in and talk about like a locker that was in his room. But then like two chapters later, he's like picking up that locker. So I'm like, wait, what? There's no dates. Like it's very disorienting to try to even figure out where you are. And in the way he writes, not a lot of stuff makes sense at times. Like random words are just all capitalized. It's just, I mean, crazy. Uh, That is Zombie (laughs) by Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the thing with Zombie, there was a period in the early 90s when there was a lot of this sort of serial killer point of view fiction. What year is Zombie? I can't remember. 95. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's like Poppy Z. Bright's Exquisite Corpse time, you know, and it's like, those books left me really claustrophobic, like really claustrophobic. Like um, you're just in someone's head who has no insight into themselves. I mean, if they did, they wouldn't be killing people. Um, And so being stuck in that POV that has that lack of awareness is, I find it tough to do for long periods, Um, which is why I've always avoided zombie. Um, now, did you see, did you read uh, My Friend Zomer, Dahmer or see the see the movie? I read the book. Okay. Um, the book's good. Yes. The movie I liked a lot. Um, I felt like the movie made him even more appealing because he's played by that Disney Channel kid. And um, and he's just so darn cute. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I, I want him to get away with this. Cute the Dahmer. movie's good. Yeah, exactly. Baby Dahmer, Lil Jeffrey. Um <laughs> The movie is interesting because it's, it's, and the graphic novel was good. I feel like by having Dahmer seen through someone near him or adjacent to him, you, you take that curse off that first person, like POV a little bit, Um, you know? And so Burke is Burke Beck. What's the guy's name? Burke, 
Dirk Beckdorf. It's like, yeah. Durf. Dirk. I don't remember. <laughs> Let me Durf see if Durf Beckdorf or something. Durf Beckdorf? Durf Beckdorf. Yes, exactly. Um, by Durf, having Durf in there, I just think it... <laughs> You, you just have you just have a little perspective. You know what I mean? Like, if I'm a serial killer, I don't think killing's bad. Well, it's terrible. Why, you know what I mean? It's gross. And, like, I don't want to just be trapped in that point of view. Um, but the movie does a thing where they do... It's a little like we were talking about Lauren's book with uh, The Shining Girls, which is you do get this sense of wasted potential. Like, something happened to this kid, and he could have been okay. And he's not. And and I think the movie did a better job for me than, than even the graphic novel of really nailing that um, without ex- making excuses for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so, yeah. So so in terms of um, serial killer point of view, talking about, you know, internal monologues, I'm going with Jim Thompson's The Killer Inside Me from, I think, 1952. Um, and it's it's a Jim, Jim Thompson was a pulp writer who really got rediscovered in the 90s um, by Black Lizard Press. And before that, he'd really written books that had fans, but they were very disposable. He was very popular in France, if that tells you anything. Um, and The Killer Inside of Me was this pulp novel where he was writing for this company that would give the writer synopses. And they gave him a synopsis for a book about a police police detective who's having an affair with a prostitute and murders her. And Jim Thompson took this and, and, and wrote this book in two weeks that is really a masterpiece of American kind of crime writing and serial killer fiction. It's this guy, Lou, I think his name's Lou Dobbs. And Lou is, um, he is a small town sheriff in Texas and he's sort of a nice folksy guy and he loves his town and he, you know, he just never wants to travel anywhere else. And, uh, he loves, he knows everyone by name and everyone knows him. And he's also a serial killer. And he is um, having an affair with a prostitute who's the only person, she's she's sort of a masochist, and she's the only person who sort of like gets on his level. But even then, she, no one's on Lou's level because it's so twisted. And he will just be all aw shucks and gee whiz and son of a gun until he murders someone. And he's got this real sadistic urge. He doesn't kill people for any other reason than he likes it. And over the course of the book, he just becomes like a, a cat trying to bury their shit. You know, he's just like, he does something over here and he's covering it up and he's working so hard to cover it up over there. He messes up over here. And then he works so hard to fix that, that he rakes something else. But he also is just a true sadist. And he even loves like, just in a conversation, He's got all these folksy sayings and people think he's a little dimwitted and slow. And so he'll just start giving them these folksy sayings and these aphorisms and these sort of like, you know, things he read in a magazine. And he just, they drive people nuts. And the more they drive people the nuts, the more he just deploys them to make them, make them just crazier and crazier. (laughs) So it's really, it's a really funny book, but really dark. And I will say, if you like it, Thompson almost rewrote it about 10 or 15 years later in a book called Pop 1280, Population 1280, 
which is about this a, a small town southern sheriff get their internal monologue in the book and um but this time it's just darker he's just taken everything about killer inside of me and turned it up to a point where it's like the the car's going so fast it's starting to shake and fall apart but there's also that kind of exhilaration of going that fast it's it's just a more grotesque over the top crazy funny ridiculous awful version of the killer inside me so for the really good version of this book the killer inside of me by jim thompson for the really over the top like heavy metal version of this book pop 1280 also by jim thompson um i would say killer inside of me we're in the freezer i would say pop 1280 we are on the coldest circle of hell (laughs) i've never heard of either of those so i am gonna have to read them (laughs) They sound well, you wild. Know, it's, it's interesting. In high school, I had this big thing for like all these. It was the 90s. So it was all these rediscovery of these like noir writers who kind of been forgotten in America, like Chester Himes and people like that. And a lot of these books, I mean, you look at something like The Big Clock or books by David Goodis, like Burglar or Jim Thompson's books. They really feel like horror. They're very grotesque. They're very dark. They're very murdery. They're very Baroque. And they really do. I mean, you know, one of the main characters who recurs throughout Chester Himes' um, noir books is Goldie, who is a transvestite nun who is a heroin addict who murders people with a straight razor who lives in Harlem and is a police informant. And she's a great character. She's really fantastic. She's got a lot of sides to her. He sort of lets you see her as pathetic and kind of fabulous all at the same time um, and really gives her a lot of agency. Um, But she's also a character you'd expect to see more in a horror movie or a serial killer movie than you would in crime fiction. So that was a real sweet spot for me in terms of coming to horror because I came to horror really late. But sort of that 40s, 50s, 60s noir writing really took me there. Yeah, I'm I'm going to have to read those. Yeah, well, definitely Killer Inside of Me. I would say Pop 1280 till you're like... Till you've got nothing left to live for anymore. <laughs> get the get the kids out of the house, off to college. You know, by then global warming will have to stay inside most of the day unless we want skin cancer. Like, just save it for then. <laughs> All right, I'll make a note of that. End of life books. Okay. Well, for my final peg, I decided to do kind of someone close to a serial killer. Uh, so in this case, I went with My Sister the Serial Killer by Oyinkan Braithwaite. And this is set in Lagos, Nigeria, where Karede is a nurse and has a very complicated relationship with her sister, Ayula. Um, she feels that Ayula is considered the favorite, the prettier sister, but it goes beyond that. When the book opens up, we learn that Ayula has, for the third time, stabbed her boyfriend in self-defense, she says. And for the third time, Karede helps her clean up and dispose the body. It has, like, a great first chapter. She's talking about how, like, I know what cleans blood and, like, doesn't leave any mess. I know how to dispose a body. I know how to do all of these things because of my sister. It's just a great book opening. Uh, But things get very complicated when Ayula starts dating a doctor that Corette works with and has a crush on because she knows how this story ends. She's very stressed out about this whole thing and starts confiding everything to a comatose patient at the hospital. 
But then that patient wakes up and asks for her specifically. (laughs) I loved this book. It is so engrossing and so fun. And it's very short. You can read it in one sitting. I wouldn't say it's horror, maybe like a dark comedy, I guess, if I had to put it in a category. But I just had such a fun time with it. It's it's very fast, but I really liked what it had to say about toxic family relationships, enabling behavior, codependency, guilt, loyalty, like a, just a bunch of themes that it's dealing with in this very dark, comedic, kind of soap opera-esque <laughs> type of stakes and stories. Um, so I would say in that case, it is room temperature, but a lot of fun, highly recommend. And that is My Sister, the Serial Killer by Oyinkan Braithwaite. Man, I've been looking forward to reading that so badly. I've heard great things about it. So this is just, this has pushed me (laughs) over the edge. I'm kindling that when I get home. Um, so my last one is, um, kind of a cheat pick because it's nonfiction, okay. but it's Anne Rules the Stranger Beside oh. Me, which which I feel like is not only the great true crime book. I mean, put, put uh, you know, Truman Capote's in cold blood to the side. Anne Rules, she <laughs> takes the triple, the crown here. Um, but also, I think it's one of the great horror novels out there. Um, have you read it? No. But so many people have mentioned it. We did a true crime episode, and that was the guest's pick for one of them. I, yeah. I need to read it, is it's, what I'm saying. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. And, you know, like a lot of... Well, so the the short version is Anne Rule was a nobody. She was a freelance writer, a, a working mom with four kids who was divorced. And she mostly wrote for True Detective magazines to make freelance money. And she got her very first book contract for $10,000 to write... Um, an account of what at the times were called the co-ed murders. Uh, and she, when she took on the job, she had no idea that these would turn into the Ted Bundy killings. And they were being committed by her very good friend, Ted Bundy, who worked next to her at a suicide hotline. And it is one of the most phenomenal books. Anne Rule in general is a very good writer, I think, with true crime. She always has a really good idea of the de- the key detail to grab, you know, that one thing that makes a scene or a character come alive. And she has a very good narrative sense for when to release information, when to tease information, when to, you know, and when to do all that. But you get that meta element of her and Ted Bundy's friendship with the stranger in, uh, beside me. And she doesn't let herself off the hook. I mean, she really feels like she should have done something or seen something or or done more. And you put all that together and you have, I think, sort of a a real American masterpiece. This book is, is, it's got all that crazy, trashy, true crime kind of fun. At the same time, it's this very dark meditation on how little we know the people around us and what our responsibilities are when it comes to them and what that says about us, this sort of willful blindness we have. And on top of that, you have this real slice of sort of working class you know, blue collar, single mom life in America in the Pacific Northwest in the early 80s, late 70s. And it's just got so much going for it. It really, it's a book that should get more respect. And and I feel like is a real 
true piece of Americana, and nothing says more about the general prejudices of our cultural gatekeepers than the fact that people keep celebrating In Cold Blood, which is a great book, but they mostly celebrate it because Truman Capote you know, went to the right parties and knew the right people and was the right kind of person. And yet he was fabulous. He knew the things to say. He was a good host. But a schlubby housewife who was working hard to hold things together, who wrote an arguably equally amazing book, doesn't get the respect. You know, it's just, you have to wonder where, you know, that sort of tells you everything you need to know about literary gatekeeping's priorities. Yeah, that's amazing. I wasn't aware of that timeline. I didn't know that she was writing about those murders while working with Ted Bundy. I kind of always assumed it was something she was just looking back on after it had come out and was like, wow, I couldn't believe I worked with this guy. Yeah. And, you know, I think they I'm not sure they were still working together when she wrote the book, but they were still friends and they still saw each other at events. And like there's there's a harrowing, harrowing set piece in this book that I don't know why this hasn't been made into a, a series or something, but where Ted Bundy comes back and invites her out for a drink after he's been accused of the Colorado killings and and she's working on the book already. And they go and they have a drink together in this bar in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the afternoon. And it's one of those sort of Pacific Northwest days. It's like half fog, half drizzle. And it's just the sun never comes up that day. And so the day goes from dark to kind of gray to dark by about three o'clock. And they're sitting in this bar in the middle of nowhere, the two of them, talking about these murders that he claims he didn't commit. And everyone's there for the lunch rush. And then it gets emptier and emptier. And it's getting later and later. And they're getting drunker and drunker. And you're like, oh, my God. I mean, it's one of the most white knuckle set pieces I've ever read in a book. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I do have to read this. Okay, my TBR just grew (laughs) a few books this episode. Uh, Well, pivoting from that, something I always ask my guests is what they are enjoying in horror Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I most of the stuff I watch and read is old and out of date because I'm just usually doing it for work or for research or something. But there's two books I read recently um, that really did it for me. And one is Sarah Langan's Good Neighbors, Mm -hmm. which just came out, gosh, earlier this year. Uh, And she's um, a horror novelist who had a really good run in the 90s and early 2000s, and then just sort of stopped writing for a long time. And this is her first book back in a while. And it's essentially about a neighborhood in Long Island where one woman just decides to wreck the life of another. And um, there's also a sinkhole and global warming and all this other stuff. But it's got some of the best teenage friendships and teenage dialogue I've ever read. It's really, really phenomenal. Um, And so Good Neighbors by Sarah Langan, I would say, uh, I would say Ice Cold. Um, And then the other one is... Diane Johnson is this literary fiction writer who wrote one sort of horror novel called The Shadow Knows back in the 70s about a woman who's getting these obscene phone calls from someone who's basically saying, I'm going to kill you. Um, And she's dealing, she's newly divorced and she's trying to put her life back together. And it is 
wild, man. It is so well written and so dead on. And it turns into this like David Lynchian blue velvet freak show. Like it's almost like blue velvet from the point of view of a divorced mother of two. Um, It's really got a lot of smart things to say about privilege and race and, um, and gender and all this stuff. And the reason people may know who Diane Johnson is, is this book was so impressive that Stanley Kubrick read it and hired her to write the Shining screenplay with him. Um, wow. And so, hey, if it impresses yeah. Stanley Kubrick. Um, so it's it's sort of the only horror novel she ever wrote, but I just read it and it's really fantastic. So Good Neighbors by Sarah Langan and The Shadow Knows by Diane Johnson. Well, I'm not familiar with The Shadow Knows, but I agree about Good Neighbors. I read it earlier this year and loved it. Yeah. I thought it really did the like neighbor suburban drama well, just ratching it up though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, I really appreciate the respect it has for kids. I think it's very easy as a parent, which Sarah is, to talk down to your kids, you know, or to write kids in sort of an idealized way, or, you know, you're worried about your kids and all that stuff. And I thought it was really great the way she sort of wrote the kids as. Almost like she doesn't get them. She doesn't understand them, but she knows they're going to be okay. And I thought that was, that really moved me in a lot of ways. And then something new we've been doing on Books in the Freezer is asking our guests for a final girl song. We have a playlist on Spotify where we add everyone's final girl song. So what would be your song? Oh, easy. Um, This song I listened to I would say between 10 and 20,000 times while I was writing Final Girl Support Group, this last sort of the last version of it. And um, if it ever gets made into a movie or a show, I will move hell and high water to get this song in it. But it is the Bangles cover of Hazy Shade of Winter, uh, one of the great 80s rock songs. I don't know it, but I am going to listen to it (laughs) as soon as we get off here. but yeah, I will add that to the list. Can't wait. Uh, you'll be very pleased. It's it's. I don't know why this song wasn't a bigger hit, but it's so good. What are the like vibes it's bringing? Like what's happening in the movie? Oh, it's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, it's a total credit sequence song. You know, it's like one of those things that just feels like, oh, this sums up everything. But it's got, you know, it's one of those mo- songs that manages to have a lot of nostalgia for the past and a lot of contempt for it too, all in the same song. It's, it's, they're firing on all cylinders with this one. I love that. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today uh, about books and everything. (laughs) What? No, this is nice. I usually just have these conversations all alone by myself. (laughs) So it's nice to have another human being involved. Well, happy to be here for that. Um, Where can people find you online? Oh, it's real easy. Just GradyHendrix.com. And that's Hendrix with an X. Um, All my dumb stuff is right there. Probably more of it than you've ever cared about. (laughs) Also, Final Girl Support Group is out today when this episode drops. So go get it. Get three copies. You need audio, ebook, and a physical copy. It's just it has to be done. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much again. No, thanks for having me. It was a blast. Oh, awesome. 
Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Instagram at Books in the Freezer, on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod. We are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Books in the Freezer. And we're on TikTok at Books in the Freezer on there. And of course, you can send us an email at Books in the Freezer at gmail.com. If you would like to support the podcast, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash books in the freezer with a one, three and a five dollar level and all kinds of perks at each different level ranging from, you know, early episode releases a few days early to Patreon exclusive group chats and bonus episodes and all kinds of stuff. So check that out on Patreon if you are interested in that. Another way to support the podcast is to use the Amazon link that is in the show notes. You just click the link, it takes you to Amazon and you would just do your normal Amazon purchases as usual. The funnest thing purchased recently using that link is a like Bluetooth blindfold with like headphone speakers, which seems so awesome. Like maybe something I actually need <laughs> in my life. Like imagine just putting that on on a plane, just really sending those do not bother me vibes, um, which I think are helpful for people like me on planes, just sending out that clear message like, no, I don't want drinks. Please don't talk to me. I know the extroverts probably just do not relate to this sentiment. But one time I was on a plane and I had headphones on and I was doing a crossword puzzle and this man next to me like aggressively poked me and made the motion for me to take my headphone out. So I did because obviously he had something very important to share with me or maybe he was going to help me with a clue. Uh, He did not. He just wanted to tell me that he had recently seen a documentary where people did the New York Times crossword puzzle, like in pen timed, and it was very interesting. Uh, That's what he wanted to share with me. Um, So yeah, that's why we need things like this. So anyway, thank you to whoever bought the blindfold headphones. I hope they work wonderfully for you. And thank you for using the Amazon link. Now, to support the show, you actually don't have to spend any money. Just telling someone about us is huge. Leaving a review Things like that are all big helps to like small indie podcasts like this one. So thank you to all of you who have taken time to do that. It's very important. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N or on Instagram at that's what she read. And that is that's with two A's. Thank you so much and see you next time on Books in the Freezer. (laughs) 